welcome back to another episode of People's Stories. I'm your host Priyanka Ocha. Thank you so much for joining us. I truly hope you'll enjoy this beautiful story and take away some genuinely brilliant insights with you. Once again, a heartfelt thank you for being here. Stay tuned and let the magic unfold. In today's exciting episode, we are diving into how we can make our workplaces fair and welcoming for everyone. Our special guest is an expert in making sure all kinds of voices are heard and valued, whether they are women, men, or people from different backgrounds and cultures. We'll explore how everyone's experience at work can be different and why understanding this helps us all. We are also diving into how companies are really starting to make DE&I a part of everything they do and not just something they talk about on their agendas. And if you've ever wondered about working in DE&I, we'll cover what you need to know to get started. So get ready for a friendly and eye-opening conversation that's all about making work better for everyone. Let's go. Today we have Tabitha Lewis in the studio with us. Tabitha, I'm super happy to have you. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation, Priyanka. For our listeners, currently Tabitha is working as, as an HR innovations and inclusive leadership consultant. And she also has a vast experience as a trainer and a speaker, and particularly working in area of accelerating women's career and growth. Um, Tabitha, I would pass on the stage to you and maybe you can talk about yourself. Where are you coming from? And how are you doing like so many awesome things together? Oh, thank you so much. Um, so I was born and raised in Venezuela, in Latin America. And, and that's, um, I want to start there because that's uh, one of the important uh, aspects of how I became who I am uh, right now. Um, after 25 years and our first uh, corporate experience in a big U.S. corporation, I traveled around Latin America. I lived in several countries in Brazil, Peru, um, Bolivia. And then I decided to come to Europe um, and basically just to meet my family who was already here in Spain. So I kind of started my career almost from scratch here, um, which is another big part of of how I ended up working in diversity, equity, and inclusion in this space. And I'm always, um, I've always been working in HR, in HR-focused roles. So when I started working in Spain, I focused in HR too, mainly, and development, um, HR innovation, uh, and so on. And after a couple of years um, in corporate too here, I decided to try in the tech startup space. Um, and I worked, and my first startup was LingoKit, uh, a net tech startup. Um, it was a very interesting experience, and, and I really enjoyed um, my time working in startups. After LingoKits, I worked uh, for Too Good To Go, and um, which is a, a Danish startup, scale up actually. And uh, my most recent uh, experience before becoming a full-time freelance consultant uh, was at a, at a psychedelic space startup called Synthesis, Synthesis Institute, um, which I, I, well, I didn't leave, but actually it was a, a bankruptcy process that I managed as an HR, VP of HR that I was there early this year. And that's when I decided, well, I want to, I want to continue to have an impact, but for as many clients as possible in the things that I am really an expert at, um, you know, being a, a VP or an HR director, whatever the, the role, um, but being the, the ultimate responsible for all HR topics means that you have to take care of so many different things from payroll to to a labor conflicts, to unions, to uh, many things that I am not an expert at. And the things that I truly can have a positive impact, which is, uh, you know, innovation, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, people development, inclusive leadership, 
this kind of things um were almost always in the in the back end or like in a second priority um because of it so that's how i decided to focus exclusively in consulting in these topics um after this last job experience and that would be um yeah a summarize of my of my life of my work life i would say that's again i mean while you were while you were talking there are like so many topics that we could individually pick up now and start talking about and many things i got curious about like psychedelics for example uh, super curious about it but in general um, before we get into your professional life and the professional setup and you know whatever you've learned from your professional journey in general let's let's take a step back and try to understand you as a person and you know how was your how were you growing up you know how what kind of um childhood did you have you know how was it what kind of um exposure did you have like and where are you right now can you tie it back to you know what happened with you in your childhood and how it's connected mhm of course um that's that's such an interesting question um i would say um venezuela in particular but in general latin america has uh, this kind of culture where women are often uh raising their families by themselves um it's a it's a pretty common topic you will meet a lot of um a lot of families with absent fatherhood um and it was my case too uh my mom raised four children by herself in a in a non-developed country with a lot of challenges um and that was a very fundamental part of how i developed my own personality because with that example i became this woman that like i always thought i could do it all i could have it all i could have the family and i could and 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 the effort and and the hard working part of my personality comes from there right from seeing my mom just never stopping no matter how difficult things were for her and believe me they were very very complex and difficult there um so i am the type of person that whenever i face a challenge i i never stop i just think okay what are what kind of resources or what kind of knowledge will i have to create in order to overcome this i've never stopped because i thought something was too difficult um so with that um i became as i said this professional that whatever i go i'm always a just person i'm always uh we need to do this okay let's figure out how i'm very resourceful in that sense um so i would say that's one big part of my personality that comes from the way i was being raised and a second one and and it's often a bit of a painful one is venezuela is also known um for being a country that values a lot women's um women because of her beauty and a very particular view of how beauty should be um and it, it it can be shocking for many people but one of the most followed events in Venezuela is the Miss Venezuela pageant um we actually as a society we feel proud of being the country with the most miss universes titles and miss world titles when i talked about this with some friends they are like well, what pageant what is that like who follows that and like well my entire country follows that it's a night where people just you know get to it's like the super bowl in venezuela like the super bowl for americans what this means for individuals like me that uh i don't fit in any possible way that standard of beauty is that we are uh outsiders i am an outsider in that i have had people tell me like oh you don't look venezuelan you don't look like a venezuelan girl uh many many times so in latin america it's very common because they have this idea of how a venezuelan woman looks like in europe it's i would say it's not that common but in latin america i would get it all the time when people ask me like oh where are you from and i'm, I'm from venezuela you don't look like venezuelan and i'm like well yeah and, and and it has many ramifications to my personality it means that I struggled and today to this day I also still struggle with my self image. I had to overcome 
standards that were put to myself, even at work. My first, I always tell this story, but the first uh, performance review that I had, um, I was valued as a high potential. And, you know, they this typical program where they put their top talents and they accelerated their careers, which is uh, how I how I got to be a manager at 25 years old. Um, they put me there and they said like, oh, you're amazing. Everything you do is great. We love you. Could you maybe wear more more makeup and, you know, brush your hair more and like not brush, but like straighten your hair, which is the typical image of the Miss Venezuela, right? More makeup and, and straight hair. And I was like, I'm already wearing makeup. Like I, I, in that time of my life, I already wore a lot of makeup and I already, you know, straightened my hair. So I was like, what more do I have to do for these people to take me seriously? Um, so it was very frustrating, but it also made me, uh, it, it ignited like something inside me that said, I want to help other women not to have to go through this. I want women in Latin America and, and everywhere in the world not to wear high heels just to be noticed at work. And, and I know, and I'm super happy here in, in Europe because I know that's not necessarily the case here, but it is back home and, and it is part of why I committed to help women accelerate their careers because yeah that's actually like so interesting and to be honest I never knew like this is the first time I'm getting to know this uh impression that people generally have for like Venezuela so how do you say it? Venezuelan, Venezuelan women um and actually I was thinking because you earlier said that you know it's very common that the people like children are raised all over all over by themselves like their moms are the most important fundamental uh, parent in their childhood so I was thinking that okay like from that perspective if if Miss Venezuela is like the most important thing it's kind of not matching you know because uh, then I mean from that perspective women should be given like a lot of importance and a lot of um, uh, how what should I say like a lot of priority you know but then it it kind of doesn't match. But then now that you are saying that there's a lot of judgment around it and there's a lot of perception around it, I think that's what kind of is making sense now. And to be honest, I feel like this is present in all the countries across the world, you know, like in some form or, form or the other. Like um, in my example, for example, particularly because I come from India, I remember that growing up, it was super important to speak English. <laughs> So, um, so if you were if you were somebody who could speak like English well, and you could you are good in literature, and you know, um, you sound well, like your pronunciation is good, then you're already smart and intelligent. <laughs> and if you cannot speak like good English, and consider that India is not like natively English speaking country, right? I mean, we have like so many local languages, and my own local, like my mother tongue, is Hindi, which is which is a, a very common Indian language. And I did not give so much importance to Hindi growing up because I was always like, English is super important. That helps me communicate. That makes me smart. You know, like that's how it is. And when I came to Germany, I saw that here people give so much importance to their regional language, which is Deutsch, German. It's like I was fascinated by the fact that I saw Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft, the suite, that was also in German language. <laughs> I was like, seriously, like to that extent. Um, and I feel like only when you see things like, of course, your example is like more prominent and more visible. But for me, it was like I had to see the difference. I had to see that, OK, you know, you can be like that. Like you can still uh, give a lot of respect to your regional language, be good in it. And then, of course, speak in English because it's a global language people understand. And yeah. Um, and and it's the, beauty, it's the beauty about uh, diversity and it's the beauty about uh, stepping, stepping out of your comfort, cultural comfort zone, traveling and seeing the world. I, I, I had a, a bit of a similar experience with this beauty topic. I, uh, when I lived in Venezuela my entire life, I was convinced that I was this ugly person, not that I didn't deserve to be loved because... I, I wasn't like those women, you know, and when I lived in Mexico and, and Argentina and other countries and I started to get all of this attention, 
and and I started to feel like, oh, actually, it this is not universal. This is in my country. This happens only in my country. In other countries, I'm a perfectly normal person, you know, living their lives because I'm not being judged solely by, you know, how much, how close are you to that beauty standard, which is, I'm not saying possible. And it's it's so impossible that women enter this this competition to to modify their bodies to to be close to that. And uh, I always like give this example. It was very common in my generation uh, for 15 year old girls to receive as a gift, you know, because 15 quinceañera, 15 years old, it's a big deal in in Latin America still. Um, the boob job, a boob job that that was a gift from their parents to them. Um, what exactly? A, a a a a boob job, a um, breast surgery. Really, you have your breast enhanced, yes. And that's the that's the that's that that's the the normal reaction. Like what a fifteen year old receiving that as a gift. But there, it's like ah, oh, it's it's a celebration. It's like awesome. You got you got a breast implant at fifteen. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, <laughs> I cannot believe it. Yeah, and yeah, it's it, like it's aspirational, then, right? So it's like yeah. people are looking up to. Um, are the standards same for like guys as well? Like, uh, are boys also kind of seen uh, that they have to also to be like a certain way? No, not at all. And and actually, it's one of the few places in the planet where I have seen couples where the woman is like it looks like a model, and the guy is just a regular guy. And I I think it also has to do with the fact that. Um, in these countries, um, the women's equality of opportunities to succeed at work are not really in the same level that you could see in the U.S. or in Europe. So one way of succeeding as a woman is being extremely beautiful and marrying to someone rich or being super beautiful and uh, getting into acting or getting into modeling, which is actually what the Miss Venezuela pageant does. It's mm. kind of a ma- like a fabric or like a like a machine to create these international models and these international um, actresses. I uh, yeah, I mean, uh, doesn't sound good. <laughs> uh, I hope I hope things are changing sooner. And 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 you've also started working in this particular area because of, obviously you've been impacted by it yourself. What I, what is it that you are doing? So I see that on your LinkedIn profile, you um, you are specifically working on elevating women's careers. So what is it that you are doing there? Yeah. So um, very specifically, I coach women with a specific methodology uh, that is based in women's experiences. And the, one of the pillars of this methodology is that even coaching was created with men's in mind. You know, everything, this is a men's world and, and, and it is what it is. But even some of the therapies and methodologies for coaching are created thinking about how men uh, build their career. And what it's particular about this methodology is that it kind of starts uh, before a normal coaching process because even before you start thinking about your own professional goals which is where you usually start in a coaching uh, session uh, we go way before that and we analyze what are your inner uh, glass ceilings the ones that are not only out there because they are and not not our own not only the systemic and structural glass ceilings that you have to face but the ones that are created inside of you because of the fact that you were born a woman and you got all of this, you know, uh, culture uh, or so like I call it cultural software, you know, installed into your own mind. So we go there because it's the only way that I have found women can dream as big as they should and as big as they could. Because um, otherwise you start dreaming and you start putting yourself professional goals with already with those glass ceilings. So that's one of the pillars. And the second one is we are not linear. We are not women by nature. We are cyclic. Um, We have different energies around the month. We have at least four very different phases with very different energies. And 
once you start working professionally, knowing what kind of energy you have in each time of the month, then things flow more naturally. If you want to work linear, as if you had the same energy and the same attitude the entire month, then you miss the opportunity to, to you know, work with your cycle and you work against your cycle. So there are moments in the month where you are more reflective, where you are more intro- introspective, and there are other moments where you are more extroverted and you have more energy and you have more doing energy instead of thinking or reflecting energy. So that's what I uh, do with, with some of the women that I coach. And, and of course, the end goal is, is by using these techniques and this, uh, these pillars help you accomplish your professional goals. Mm. And uh, so how, how can we find this organization? Like what, what is it called? Um, it's, I do it uh, as a freelance. It's my own uh, coaching practice. Um, and what I do more professionally is I, I am a trainer and a consultant in diversity, equity, and inclusion, not only to include women, but to include all kind of diversity. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, basically, if somebody wants to kind of find you and kind of enroll to this course, what, how should they do that? Like, should they reach out to you on LinkedIn or is there like something available on the internet? Well, um, I am in the process of developing the offer because actually I, for now I only do one-to-one coaching sessions, but I'm working on a, on a group coaching session. Um, but this is the, str- the daily struggle for me is either I work or I design for the future. You know, like my personal page is on my draft uh, to do it for a long time because uh, luckily I'm, I'm always working. I have five clients right now that I meet every two weeks um, for coaching sessions. I have all the clients that I'm developing some trainees in diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it will it will be there. If people want to find me, I, it's LinkedIn. I, I live and breathe LinkedIn. Um, and actually I have in my own page uh, at li- on LinkedIn, I have a, a link where you can book 15 minutes with me um, if you want to explore how can I help you accomplish your, your goals in one of those coaching sessions. That would be that would be amazing, and I'm just thinking because, um, like when when I'm thinking about the way I am operating, there are times when I'm when I'm introspective, as you are saying, but I always kind of related to that I am an overthinker, and that's why I'm like thinking that way. But it could also have to do with me, just the fact that, or that I am a female. That's the reason why I'm I'm being introspective in like that particular period of time. So I think it's super interesting to know and. It kind of uh, uh, puts down the pressure a little because it's like, okay, it's novel. I mean, it happens to everybody. It happens to all females out there. So it's uh, exactly. super interesting to know that. Yeah. And I think it's when we go against the cycle, it's when we start having this, this uh, outbreaks of, uh, you know, like emotionality and, and, and like feeling uh, insecure and feeling like you are not worthy and so on. Because, of course, if you are in that moment of the month when you are introspective and reflective and you have to, I don't know, deliver a training in front of 100 people, you might get into that mentality of, oh, I, I'm, I am wordless, I can't do that. But if you remember, like, oh, no, this is not me. This is, you know, my hormones are at this level in the month. This is going to pass. This is not a forever feeling. And also there are things that you can do to be more balanced in those times, right? Like some food that you should avoid. Alcohol, for example, is not a good thing to do when you're in those moments. So when you know yourself and you know your own patterns, then it, everything flows easily. But this is, this is kind of a discovery that each woman does at a different level of, of their lives because sadly in society, we keep talking about linear paths. We don't talk about the cycles enough, at least. We don't talk about the, the hormonal changes around the month. And we are still seeing, you know, um, companies trying to sell us things for us to be uh, fresh and, and do sports and do a lot of things, even when we are like in, in, a, in a very tough moment of the month where we just want to stay home 
and be comfortable and be cozy because geez, we are bleeding three days in a row. Like it's, it's a really intense process. And imagine just to, you know, like do as if nothing was happening and try to, you know, lead a training of 100 people when you're really not feeling that well. Um, so the more we explore into our own patterns, the easier it is to try and plan ahead and see if you can maybe change that training and not do it precisely when you know you're not going to have that kind of energy and and take advantage of the reflective energy to do the kind of work that it's more likely to be successful at that time, right? Like reports or um, work on analytics or, you know, do some assessment, self-assessment, assessment of others. So it's about having that powerful tool to plan ahead. And if you can't plan ahead because you have a job and you have to do it that day or, or you can't work around that deadline, at least give yourself some slack and know like, okay, this is going to pass. This hmm. is not a forever feeling. This has to do with my own cycle. And is this all, I mean, um, the way you feel in like that particular period of the month, let's say, is it like all scientifically proven that, okay, you have to feel, I mean, you will feel this way because it's this time of, of the month for you? Yes, exactly. I mean, of course, there are individual experiences that can vary from women to women, hmm. but there's it, there's uh, evidence that our hormone levels are different around the month and this cycle repeats each month. And when you your estrogens are high and your testosterone is low, your energy is completely different than when your estrogen is low and your testosterone is high and so on. This so, is so interesting. <laughs> of course. And, and it has to do with the fact that every month, for many women, because not all women ovulate and go through the entire biological cycle, but every month your body prepares to do something specifically it was built to do, which is, you know, uh, host life. Hmm. And for example, when that doesn't happen, imagine the body is just getting rid of something it prepared for weeks and it was waiting for life to be hosted there. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's not anymore. And course this has psychological impacts and it has biological impacts and the hormone levels change so i'm not saying anything new i'm actually not even the expert on this biological explanation of uh, what i am is someone that found it, their patterns their patterns i researched why that was happening i noticed that hormone levels have something to do with it and that eating some kind of foods made it worse for example eating high sugary foods when you are close to your period it's one very bad idea the same with alcohol and it creates a more like intense experience of those uh introvert feelings of those uh low energy feelings that you have right before you're gonna have your period i don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you feel like oh everything is so bad i'm the worst um i did this horrible mistake at work and like everything is going really badly. And then the next day your period comes and you're like, oh, it was like many times. <laughs> yeah, many times. So what a powerful tool it is to at those times remember like, oh, no, 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 no. This is not me. This is the hormones talking. I'm not the worst. I didn't do a terrible job. It's just that I'm about to get my period. Hence, my hormone levels are messing with my head. This is, I think this is like so powerful. Like when I'm, when I'm just even thinking about it, it's like, you know, you can remove so much of that negative judgment and that negative self-talk if you are aware that, you know, this is like a process and it will just happen this way. You know, just let it happen, let it go. Um, and as you are saying, like it might not be possible for everybody to be able to actually reschedule their work or to do something separately like in that way. But then just being aware in itself is going to cut you some slack and be like, it's okay. Like, obviously, you'll still give your 100% and, and, and I'm sure you'll still do a good job. But then it's that, that higher expectation <laughs> that we have from ourselves. I think that's where you can cut yourself some slack then. Of course. And then there are many vital uh, experiences for women that also have a huge impact on their careers. Uh, being a mother... 
uh, taking some time to care for your children or for elderly people in your family or for other family members, which is one um, one of those unpaid tasks that we do uh, in a higher percentage than men, actually almost exclusively um, uh, women do those kind of caring activities as compared to men. Um, when when I coach women, many of their insecureness or their um, other challenges have to do with taking a leave, uh, wanting to become a mother, and how to how to navigate that if you want to ask for a promotion. Um, so again, this is why I I I do believe, and I can see it with my clients that having a, a women perspective or or a gender perspective when you do coaching and anything else. It's really beneficial, at least for now, until my dream is that we live in a world where this is not needed anymore, when you don't need a gender perspective because it's already embedded in society. Um, and that's the dream for the work with women. And that's also my dream for diversity, equity and inclusive work. I wish that there was a time where you don't need a DNI chief officer because it's so embedded in the culture and everyone already understands how diverse teams mean different things. You cannot just do the same thing for everyone and expect everyone to thrive. I, I, I dream of a time where you don't even need that diversity officer because all of your leaders have that as a basic skill like communication, English, inclusion. This is it. Like you don't even have to name it. It's already there. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, that would be like an ideal world where, you know, you don't have to think about all of these things. And it's like, it's obvious. It is the way it is, you know, like I think that would be wonderful. And I'm also kind of trying to understand because you've been in this area for a longer time and you've specifically worked with a lot of people and culture and then we get being an HRBP and then now exclusively working on diversity and inclusion, equity and inclusion. Do you see uh, it has improved over time or what's your experience like? How has, the, how has this place evolved? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, the DNI work, for some people, this might be shocking, but it's not new. It's been decades of diversity, equity and inclusion work. But it did receive like this hype very recently. I would say the last five years, probably. You know, everyone started talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, I I guess it started with um, some uh, racial movements in the U.S. and some very tragic events that happened there that created this effect of people starting to really care about how inclusive their their workplace are and so on. Um, and I think we're getting to the point uh, as any topic that gets vital and that gets hyped, we're getting to the point where we are experiencing some kind of diversity fatigue. Um, and this is not something that I just think it's something that many professionals are um, are mentioning. And the biggest uh, diversity, equity and inclusion conference last year was about the diversity fatigue. And it's um, it's basically uh, an effect of people being kind of, um, yeah, fatigued by the fact that you are getting sent to diversity trainings every year. Um, diversity hires are constantly on the strategic plan of every company, yet very little advancement is achieved. Um, you do, as I said, diversity training and you have this employee resource groups, and they seem to be doing very similar activities every year, yet it's like, it's hard to see what's the next level. Like, okay, well, we already did the, the employee resource group. We are celebrating the Hispanic month, the Black History Month, the mm, LGBTQ plus day, etc. pride. But what's, what's next, right? We already do all of those things, but What's next for the diversity, equity, and inclusion work? And of course, for companies, they are each one of them are in their own journey. For some of them, you still need to have those ERGs, those employee resource group, and you still need uh, to do this basic um, diversity training. But for others, I guess the next step, uh, hopefully, is 
to just think about diversity and inclusion as another business metric, like something that everyone has to to be aware of and work for and not just like this celebration each month or for, for the different groups that you have at the company. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, till the time it's not really imbibed in, as a business metric in, in companies, I don't think it's going to have any impact more than just people uh, just talking about it. So, of course, awareness is like the first step, you know. So I think most of the companies are there now, like a lot of people are aware and there are a lot of um, developments in that area. Like, for example, I think now in the senior management, you have to have like what 10%. Um, I think there are like criteria. I'm not 100% sure, but 10% like females, 10% some other um religions and cultures uh, apart from like whatever the main religion or culture of that place is so I think that's kind of uh, enabling this thing to happen and also I think it's like this will take some time because it's also a generational thing you know because as you're saying like the more people we have at the top who are belonging to those different groups and and really understand the problems the struggles and where people are coming from, I think things will start changing. Um, but yeah, I mean, if it happens sooner, and as you are saying, like if it becomes a business metric, I think that will basically just accelerate everything and um, make it a better place for everyone from that perspective. And I think for me personally, like I am also seeing a lot of uh, movement around, for example, gender pay gap. Like that has become a super important topic right now where everybody is conscious about it um just because of the fact that you have to do a lot of transparency around salary and salary ranges i think it it indirectly kind of maps to the fact that you know you have to be fair in in whatever you are paying so i think that's how it's kind of getting imbibed in the business but again i mean of course it's going to take time yeah, and I mean, uh, you you nailed it there. This is going to happen. Nobody's going to stop the fact that we are moving towards a world that is more equitable, that is including all of this diversity. Like, you cannot stop that. Um, what we're trying to do is accelerate it. Um, because, I mean, you always need, if you want to innovate in any kind of business, in any kind of activity, you need this this pieces that are there like accelerating uh the future right and and bringing the future closer otherwise it just takes so much time that's why when i'm when i'm like training business leaders many of them still white male uh, i mean of course this changes from country to country region to region but at least in spain um i would say it's very behind the rest of europe and you see like many white male or if you see any women, they're for sure they are white too, because um, not all of the the cultural diversity that Spain has is included in this in these spaces. And when I talk to them about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I always use the perspective of innovation. I'm like, this is not even an ethical issue for you. You don't ha even have to believe about if they deserve or not deserve to be here. You need to know that uh, diversity is key for innovation. So if you want to have a competitive advantage as compared to your in your space or in your industry, this has to be one of your of your um, metrics. I think in most, of, I think I saw it in one of the um, one of the AI models that they've generated. I think it was with this sorry with face recognition, and the model was trained particularly on a white population, and so then when brown or black population was using it it was the the model was not working so well and so if you if you like that's the classic example of diversity not being like really a part of that learning model and so they had to kind of redo the whole thing because because i mean more than half of the world population is not white right <laughs> so uh, and you have to sell your products everywhere so i think it's like a more of business case rather than just um being nice or being good or being fair of course um, i i recall one of the first times that as an hrvp i was working with a with a group within the company i was working for this um creative group they were 
were, uh, they had to do this uh, campaign for a, a feminine hygiene products. Um, and I went to observe one of their meetings. It was 100% male. They were all trying to create an advertisement campaign for a product they never used. So the ideas, and I know it sounds like a joke because it should be a joke. Like, I, I, I don't even understand how they assemble that group, but they had these crazy ideas based on stereotypes. And I was there just, you know, quietly observing how they were missing all the points of how women use these products. Why do they use them? What are their pain points? Because even they even have research, but they couldn't interpret it in the in in a in a right way or in, in the best way, I would say, because they they never had that experience. So you need definitely you need diversity at all levels of the organization if you want to maintain that uh, level of co of competitiveness in your industry. Just one last comment from my side on this topic, because I know this is like an endless topic and we can talk about it for like hours. But um, just to close it, I think I personally believe that females are also to blame for, I mean, specifically when we talk about male and female, like gender gap inequality uh, and inequality, I think females are also to blame for it because It's all, it's all the conditioning that we've received, right? And growing up, I think, and, and I'm not like questioning anybody or trying to like, you know, uh, raise fingers or whatever, but we've never been actually taught to take space. We've never been taught to, you know, like say out loud that, okay, this is not something I want. This is something that I want. And, but guys, on the other hand, it's like very common for them to, to do all of these activities. Growing up, when when you start uh, menstruating or having your periods, it's like you're taught that okay, you should not, you should keep this a secret. You know, you should not talk talk to people about it. So it becomes something that you are embarrassed about. Although it's like the most natural thing that can happen to to anybody, right? So I feel like because it's because it has been that way, like even with even with um pads that are used like sanitary pads that are used during periods though most of the pads like when they were invented it was invented like in India especially it was invented by a guy who saw that his wife is having issues and she's ready to spend money on like other stuff like religious stuff or whatever but she's not ready to spend money on herself so I feel like you know I Now we should be at least at that time where, where we as females, at least we take that space and we take that courage and we teach this to, to the generation that the generations that are to come, that, you know, take that space, <laughs> be who you are. And, and in the workplace, you can see that too, we are less likely to negotiate salaries, for example. We don't want to take more than what they're offering, right? Because we were taught to conform, to be nice, to be quiet. So engaging in a salary negotiation feels very uncomfortable for many of us. But the, here's, sorry, I, one last idea. Here's the, the interesting thing. Not only we negotiate, we are less likely to negotiate salaries, for example, but also when we do, because of that expectation, we get worse results. Not because we're not good at negotiating salaries, but because the other part expects us to be quiet and not take space. So yes, of course, we are responsible and we need to do the work, but all of us, men, men and women, female and male, we all need to do the work because we also need to allow women to take space without punishing them because they are not conforming to what we think they should be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, unless that's like absolute truth, like unless the other party is like open, <laughs> you can, it will, it will be like a futile effort because you'll fight. I mean, you'll get in that conversation, you'll be upset, they'll be upset, everybody will be upset. It's, it will be worthless, you know, and eventually the idea is to uplift, is to uplift everybody. Um, I mean, if you just think about it, I think there was another research which talked about the working population getting older, right? So most of the world, we have like the population that's 
that's getting older and uh, from the younger generation if we are still not continuing to have like all the groups represented then you're kind of reducing your workforce on your own so it's like a global problem that's happening all over the world right now um so i'm sure i mean there is no other way i mean this is the only way that you can actually get like efficient good amount of working population to actually take world's economy to like the next level that we need i mean it's needed like you cannot have more old people than people who are working otherwise pension the whole pension structure will fall um so yeah i and, and i think that i mean my impression is that companies and global leaders they're already kind of um addressing like they've already at least realized the issue and more bigger companies have started working in that direction as well but it's like me and you like at my level and your level and our colleagues and friends level that we have to understand that you know this this thing will make a few people uncomfortable because obviously when you take space you are going to reduce if there's like limited space then you might be reducing somebody else's space yeah and it also uh you know what happens with this work too is that it uh, surfaces the fact that for many many years and a specific group of people has been benefit of from privileges and the story they have is not that they have privileges it's that they earn them you know there's this meta- the, the need of meritocracy what says is that really if you are born with a certain color of your skin with a certain gender in certain parts of the world because it's not the same to be born in the south of the world that in the global north for example then you have access to things that you you didn't necessarily earn you just you were born like that and that's a a shocking finding for many people because they first feel angry and then ashamed and then they they don't know what to do with that information like okay what do you want me to do like do i give up my job and what i always tell them is no i mean you have all those privileges that's amazing use them for good just try and help others instead of mentoring only people that look like you which this is a very common thing in organizations you see a lot of senior managers mentoring their their minimis their you know their younger versions of themselves in, instead of mentoring people that look like you you know try and help someone that it's absolutely different from you that there's no other way they would find a senior mentor like yourself, you know, helping them with their career. That's a way of just, you know, using your privileges for good. You cannot change your the color of your skin and that's not even desirable of course, but do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sad reality <laughs> right now, but yeah, let's be hopeful. Let's hope that things change and and people like you who are already working in this direction are are already making it happen. So I'm sure the future looks more optimistic. <laughs> I can assure you. I can assure you that the minute you say this kind of things to to people, many of them, maybe not immediately, but they they start thinking. And I I frequently receive messages, you know, like 3 months after uh, I spoke somewhere or 3 months after a training like oh davida actually you know in the following months i reflected and and i started doing this and i started changing wow. this uh it's not immediate because it it's a it's a journey of self growth self consciousness and growth but it is changing and we can definitely accelerate that that change yeah I'm sure I'm sure I uh, I wish all the very very best to you and people like you who are already working in this area that things get better soon. Um and now I would like to move a little towards your professional path and for somebody who let's say somebody who uh, is starting their journey now uh, into the professional world and wants to get into for example um simply let's say hr as an hr generalist or somebody who wants to get into specifically deni or specifically into people and culture like how does that typical path look like what are some resources that they can start looking at well there are two things that have helped me accelerate my career more than anything else um the first of all was being able to communicate in english even if it's not perfect it's definitely given me an advantage not only 
to get more opportunities, but also to um, to be able to explore and research and understand, you know, people that are, you know, 80% of the knowledge in, of humankind is in English. So if you want to have access to all of that, um, learning English is a must. So if you are starting your career and you don't speak English, just get to it. And the second, and this is an advice that someone gave me very early in my career, it's do not behave like the role or the position you currently have. Behave like the one you you desire. Behave like the one you are, you know, trying to get to. And um, I didn't understand it at first, but um, now I understand that, of course, if you are a junior analyst or, you know, you are a recruiter, and you behave like a recruiter and you only give your opinion about recruiting and you never explore outside of that and you never take on more responsibilities, um, nobody's going to know that you can do more than that. Everyone's going to think like, yes, they are a recruiter or they are a junior analyst. Whereas if you like really do the extra mile and you really behave with with much more responsibility that they they are giving to you right now in this moment of your career, then you can prove to others that you can actually do more. So the titles will come. I've never asked for a promotion, never in my life. But I always behave, you know, I always take things as seriously as my manager. I never just stay in my position like, oh, that's not my problem. I don't work in that area or I don't, I don't know anything about compensation. I'm not going to help. I'm always thinking about ways I can collaborate and learn more things than I already know. I don't know if that's clear enough, but it's been the single most important advice that I received in my career, and and I think that it's it it, it should be helpful for many people when they are starting their careers. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think it it's definitely helpful, and um, I've personally also seen and heard from a lot of people that you know, um, it, it's it's about you behaving in that in that way that you your next way uh, next step basically and then when you start behaving in that manner you also start start thinking you also start acting so you know like basically you kind of uh, manifest yourself to that to that new level um in terms of courses in terms of skill sets like what what would your uh, advice be so the, the human resources or people and culture, as we are trying to call it right now, um, this this space is changing very rapidly because it's a very it's a fairly new profession. It doesn't have more than one hundred years, actually, probably uh, much less than that. Um, so something that I believe it's very helpful is to uh, when you face and on where, where, when you try to choose resources to lure, learn from. I think the best way to do it is to choose things that are completely outside of your scope. So I would never advise someone with a degree in HR to do a master in HR. I'm not, I think that instead of that, go and do a product management program because then you will be able to learn how to like product teams work and you can bring that to the, to your own HR team. And that has a huge impact. And how efficient you can be if you uh, install agile methodologies, if you install that product mindset within your own HR team. Um, go and learn about design and learn to design the employee journey as if it was a user journey. Uh, go and learn other things from the business that you can apply to your own uh, to your own profession. So I that that would be my advice. I don't have any specific course in mind. But rather, the the I would prompt everyone to just, if you want to be the best HR person ever, go and learn from the business, because HR is evolving, and it's very likely that the the core of HR, you know, what we call people operations, payroll, and so on, at some point, not too far in the future, everything will be done by automatized or by a machine, or you know, it's already happening. So the true difference there will be the human skills and, and your knowledge in the business. So go and learn about the business. Uh, be the best at uh, emotional intelligence. Be the best at communication. So go and learn those things. And, um, and, and then 
finally, I'm, I'm not the person that goes and, and tries to learn uh, from a for formal course because it's not my style. I have done some, of course, but I'm more of a learning by doing kind of person. So I'm all constantly creating the opportunities for me to learn something. So when I wanted to learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what I did, I, I founded a project with a colleague that had the same uh, interest uh, that I had. And we started creating a, a newsletter and we started doing conferences and we started doing consulting. And in two years, people started calling me to do their trainings. Um, I don't have a formal certification. Now I do because I went to, to study inclusive leadership and, and I did learn a, a lot of very valuable things. But in the beginning, I didn't have any of that. And, and I wasn't certified in anything related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I created that opportunity for myself. Hmm. Okay. I think this is super valuable. So basically, anybody who is who's wanting to get into any of these areas, and, and when, I, when we say human resources, it's super vast. So I think of course, like getting it, like getting to know, like what is it that you are interested about? Because there is HR analytics, then there is operations, there is there is a lot of stuff that that's there. Um, and then the second thing would be to get like internships or um, to actually start doing like I don't know, get a sponsorship from from some kind of um, I don't know non um, non for profit organization, something of that sort. If in case you are not able to get into like a proper internship. But I think right now it's like also super common for companies to to just do that. So I think the experience that you will gain by doing will be far more than the experience you will gain by just a course, probably. And um, one more thing is around the earning potential. So how do you see it? Like, and uh, I know this is like the earning potential could be different in different countries. But let's talk about the country where you're based of where you are based out of right now, which is Spain. How does it look like? Well, for Spain, diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's sadly not a very common kind of work and role. Um, it's most likely um, um, like people go to consultants like me. They, they don't usually have uh, someone internally doing this kind of work. Um, but I would say that for a people and culture manager, a regular uh, income in Spain, at least, should start at thirty-six thousand per year, and it can go up to sixty thousand per year. Um, someone with, you know, five years of experience, maybe a couple of direct reports, and uh, in a uh, middle and an SMB, a middle company, you know, in big corporations, the salary can go anywhere from sixty to one hundred thousand per year. Um, a lot more responsibility, of course, and a lot more direct reports, but that sh should be more or less the average income. I don't know if that's uh, what you wanted to to. Yeah, no, no of course. Um, uh, that's yeah. I mean, I think this information is useful. And would you also have an idea of what a typical course would cost? Like, like if somebody wants to do a a bachelor's in human resource or. Uh, an additional master's in human resource like do you know how much the fee structure typically is yeah um it depends on the prestige of the university uh you can have i actually designed a bootcamp uh be a people and culture manager bootcamp with a with a company here in spain and it's very accessible it's uh i think it's 1.5k uh for three months of intensive uh learning with experts in HR and it, it's very, very focused in the startups. But if you want to have, you know, the title of the big university here in Spain, uh, I recently requested a quote from a, a, one of these business schools and it was 20K for an HR uh -huh. master, which is very, okay. very expensive. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. I, I mean, 20K is just the fees, right? So probably like you living your own expenses, like all of that added together. But I think um, if you're still able to start at like 36 or above, like depending on, you know, what kind of experiences you've gained through internships or those kind of things, I think eventually you will still be able to kind of be at a good place uh, from that perspective. Yeah, and, and, and I think Priyanka, it's all about really what kind of career you want to have. If you want to grow for big corporations, then definitely the name of the university has a big impact, sadly, because still people look at your resume and they say, oh, X university mm, must be good. Um, 
regardless of whatever knowledge you're going to get at that uh at that uh, master um but if you if you want to you know start your own company or if you want to work in the startup scene um you don't need that big name in your resume if that's your calling then you can go just for the one that is going to give you the tools that you need to actually know how to do the job and it doesn't have to cost 20k it can cost 1.5k for example and and now it is as you're saying like, there are so many boot camps there are so many specialized courses that you can do on top of like whatever basic degree that you have and usually that's like my personal experience is that that's like super valuable and gives you exactly those skills that you want to kind of attain right so that helps just one clarification tabitha so when you said 20000 for that course was it for bachelor's or for masters for a master i'm thinking about a master yeah oh okay and would you also know for bachelor's honestly i don't but because in spain you have many uh, public universities and the fees are very low um and i've never uh, i've never even like thought about a bachelor degree in hr i did it in my own country and it was a long time ago so i i don't have that information i'm talking about masters degree okay good that way sorry yeah yeah. Yeah, but I think most of universities are, as you're saying, it they are public universities, so they are very, very low. And then otherwise, you can also, I'm sure it's also available on their website, so it should be easy to find. Um, great. I think that's everything that I want to wanted to talk about. I mean, of course, like as I said earlier, we could delve into a lot of topics that I am super passionate about personally and would like to to get into. But I think let's reserve another episode for that. Um. Thank you so much for your time. It was super valuable. Thank you so much for the invitation. I had a great time and and yeah, and I hope that our audience also had a great time listening to us.